Aidan Wilson Tozer has written this book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which I'm going to get into in just a little bit. And if you're in a life group, you're going to be going through this. You can see how thin it is. Look how kind I am to you. It's only about 115 pages, but there's a lot going on in there. Um, but he was born in April 21st, 1897, and he preferred to just be called Tozer, and so that's what we do. We just call him Tozer. And uh, he lived in Akron, Ohio. Uh, uh, he um, heard one sentence from a street preacher as he walked past when he was a young man, and that one sentence was, if you don't know how to be saved, just call on God. And so when Tozer went home, that's what he did. Um, and uh, basically at that point, as all Christians here know, God uh, intercepted his life and intersected his life, and that was the beginning of a life pursuing God. Uh, in 1919, he's just 22 years old. He's not formally educated, but he's called to pastor in Nutter Fort, West Virginia, and he spent the next 44 years ministering, 31 of them eventually in Chicago at Southside Alliance, and he spent his final years actually pastoring at Avenue Road Baptist Church in Toronto, and he died at 66 of a heart attack, and he's buried in Akron, Ontario. Um, what emerged out of his life and ministry that are of most benefit to us, I mean, obviously the people in his churches, the people he ministered to benefited greatly, but what we got are many short, powerful books that grew straight out of Tozer's sincere and profound pursuit of God. Tozer was a very deep thinker and a powerful communicator, as you will soon discover in his books, and his use of words was so powerful um, his daughter actually remembered that they would rather be treated to the switch or spanked by mother than have a talking to by father. <laughs> so as you get into the book, you will discover that he is a powerful conveyor of words. One friend commented on his writing, he left the superficial, the obvious, and the trivial for others to toss around. His books reach deep into the heart. Which brings us to this book the knowledge of the holy. As I said, it's, it's barely over 100 pages, and they're not large, nor is the print small. You will have 11 weeks to read this book. Um, it's just 10 to 12 pages per week, and yet you will need every one of those weeks, all 11 of them, and in fact, you will probably want 11 more to read it again. The book is interesting. It's not technical, um, it's not packed with Bible verses. Tozer has deliberately written it as his own sort of reflective prose on the attributes of God and who God is. And it's just normal conversational sentences, but you will discover with poetic force as well. And although it's not a book full of Bible verses, it's the kind of book that's written by a man who is utterly saturated in his knowledge of the Bible. And even though Tozer's using the helpful category of attributes, chapter by chapter, to aid us in our understanding of God, this book makes no attempt to contain God or to dissect God into parts. In fact, just the opposite, this book by Tozer is inviting us to meditate on exactly how uncontainable and how limitless God is, and how our mere categories are only shadows cast by far grander, infinite realities. And so Tozer is, as we go through this over the next 11 to 12 weeks, he's in some ways teaching us or perhaps showing us how our minds are able to approach thinking about God. He's not just teaching us what to think about God, but he's training us how to change the way we think 
and to change our minds and hearts so that we think about God in a way that is more profitable to us and avoid thinking about God in wrong ways that are unprofitable. And so this series will not only be what we learn about God, but also what we learn about how we think and learn about God. The bottom line is we want you to read this book. That's why we're doing it, okay, if I'm just being very honest. You need books like this in your Christian life. It will be of great help to you as we parallel this book chapter by chapter um, on Sunday mornings with the biblical basis for each of Tozer's descriptions of the holiness and the set-apartness and the otherness of God. And it will be helpful as we train and transform and redeem our minds to think rightly about him. It's the kind of book you could read every two or three years and benefit from. So why is the topic of this book so important to us as Christians? Like, why the knowledge of the holy? Why the attributes of God? Why this particular theme? Why spend all of the last part of winter and spring on it? Well, as I quoted from Tozer last summer, and you'll read in chapter 1, he has concluded accurately that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We need to understand that. He goes on to say, were we able to extract from any man or woman a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we to know exactly what our most influential church leaders think of God today, we might well be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. So in other words, if I was to ask you, what do you think of when you think of God? And you were, I was able to know what it was that came to your mind when you thought of God. Then I could pretty much know where your life is going to go and where your faith is going to go for sure. Because what we think about God is an important thing that we think. So the question this book asks us, challenges us with as disciples, is very simple. Do you and your church have a high view of God or a low view of God? Or perhaps more practically for us in this series, do you even know what thoughts of God you have are raising or lowering your view of him? Do you know what you should be thinking about God? Do you know for yourself what thoughts are worthy of God and what thoughts are unworthy? Do you know what you should not be thinking about God? What thoughts debase him? I think with the influence of our culture today, we could become perhaps, perhaps we already have become, a tribe of Christians who do not even know that our thoughts of God are unworthy and too small. We don't even notice that we are not thinking rightly of God. That our thoughts of God are unhelpful, maybe even heretical. And this book and this series is an inoculation against that. It's a corrective and a guard. And as we read the words of a man who knows God, and we study the word that teaches us the right view of God, then we can renew and reform our thoughts of God, leading us to his greater glory, our greater joy, and kingdom advancement in the world. Because if we don't get our thoughts of God right, and we'll never get them perfect, God is unknowable. But we can spiral towards knowing better. And as we spiral towards a more and more truthful and knowledgeable understanding of God, then our personal lives flourish, the church advances, the gospel goes forth, and God is worshipped. And we want to lead to churches and lives that are purified and victorious instead of distorted and weak. 
So that's why the high view of God is so important. That's why Tozer wrote this book. That's why we're doing this study. To know the holy, to know the other, to know what seems unknowable but has been revealed to us. So let's just pray as we start to dig into an overview of all of the Bible and why this is important. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for A.W. We thank you for this book. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you that we have it preserved for us. We thank you that we can follow uh, in the teaching of a great man such as Tozer. But more importantly, Lord, we thank you that we have your word and that we get to hold up what we learn from Tozer against the mirror of your word and compare it and understand what is true and what is right. So much of it is, but at the same time, know from ourselves, from Scripture, um, what it is that you would reveal about yourself and why knowing you is so important to us as a people and as individuals and as a nation and as a world. It is of critical importance that we know who you are. And so, Father, I just pray your blessing upon this series as we not just speak today, but in the weeks to come about knowing you and that by your Holy Spirit, you would reveal yourself to us so that we would know you more and more deeply, uh, perhaps the way Tozer did. And, uh, and we know from his life and his writings that he knew you well. And we want to join in that and reap the same benefit of knowing a God that is holy and pure and perfect and loving and for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So is what Tozer's talking about scriptural? Is this whole high view of God theme that he's on and understanding the attributes something that we need to get from Scripture, that we do get from Scripture? And of course, the answer is going to be yes, but we want to see it for ourselves in the Bible. And so where do we see this idea that a high view of God is so important to God and to his people, especially in the meditation on his attributes most fervently pursued in Scripture? Where do we see that happening? Well, I want to do it sort of in three sections. I want to consider the prophets when God's people Israel, or we would say the church today, are in need of restoration. We want to consider the psalmist when the individual believer is personally in need of restoration, and we want to consider the apostles when the gospel and the new covenant is in view. And so first of all, we look at the law and the prophets, and it perhaps goes without saying that the Bible starts things out right with a high view of God. I mean, in Genesis, he created the universe from nothing. It's hard to begin with a higher view of God than the one who created everything from nothing. And the first five books constitute the revelation of the instruction of God, which, of course, cements that high view of God as our creator and as a personal, present, active redeemer. Uh, in, throughout the Pentateuch, God rescues the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt, repaying the years of their slavery with the gold of the Egyptian masters that they carry away. He destroys their enemy armies, um, without uh, needing them to lift a sword. He gives them his instruction on Mount Sinai, appearing before his people as fire and lightning and cloud. His first commandment to them is, you will put no other God ahead of me. He designed the encampment of Israel to surround his presence in the tabernacle at the center. His people did not move from that presence unless God moved at the head of their column. Uh, We don't need to belabor the point. God rightly establishes in his word in the very beginning a high view that we should have of him, that all God's people put God at the top of their list in every category. It's in his law, it's in the structure of the tabernacle, it's in his holy presence, it's in the ordering of his worship, and for a time, in the beginning, a very brief time, to a lesser or greater degree, Israel held that high view 
God's people held a high view of God. But then we know what happened next, and repeatedly. For more than 1,500 years, the people of God lost their high view of God. And that's, as Tozer would point out to us today, in the modern church, was the problem from the beginning. When God's people lose a high view of God and they start thinking low thoughts of God or inconsiderate or distracted views of God, inevitably decline begins. The people of Israel were infected by the paganism of the nations surrounding them and their view of God lessened and lowered. We see this in Judges chapter 2, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. So they exchanged a high view of the uncreated God and substituted their view and their understanding of the uncreated God for substitute gods that were made by themselves in their own image. Even when they claimed to worship God, they were worshiping themselves under a distorted veneer of religiosity that they they only used the, the religion that God gave them to absolve their guilt, hide their evil, and give them a reason to blame God if they didn't receive what they ask. In Isaiah, God says to them, bring no more vain offerings of incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. See what God is saying? You guys are just trying to cover up your sin here. Like, stop the sacrifices. Stop the church services. Stop the feasts. My soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them because the people of Israel have lost a true vision of who God is. But you could go on to Jeremiah 6 or Amos 5 or Malachi 1. The prophets repeatedly are returning to Israel and saying, you have lost a proper view of God. Your view of God has become less and less and less and secularized and paganized. And you are no longer even worshiping God correctly. And God gives the prophets the words of correction. In Micah 3.11, says, Her leaders, and leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look to the Lord's sups, to, for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come. So, so the priests and the people of God were like basically completely trivializing and monetizing the religion and yet hoping that somehow God was going to take care of them despite their insincere worship. And you could go to Zephaniah 3.4 or Hosea 6.9 or Ezekiel 22.26 or Jeremiah 5.1. Every prophet says the same thing. Over and over and over again, pretty much pick any era, any prophet, pick any priesthood of the Old Testament, and we see the same problem repeating itself. The high, glorious, righteous, true knowledge of God is dimmed, it is lessened, it is lowered in the minds of his people, and it ultimately results in disaster for Israel. It results in a dissipation of their reverence, a creeping corruption of their faith, and then their culture, and ultimately idolatry, greed, and violence follows a low view of God. This is just where God's people end up if their view of God is lessened. And so God gives the prophets the antidote. They're given the eyes to see and the words to preach by God with one clear aim in mind, one command, one instruction— Return to a high view of God. Turn your minds and your hearts back to a proper understanding of God. You people have forgotten who your God is, and you need to remember him and receive restoration through a right knowledge of him. 
Isaiah 31, 6-7 says, Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold that your sinful hands have made. And so Isaiah says, Turn around. Turn back. Get away from the idols. Restore your understanding of God. Jeremiah says, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithfulness. Your faithlessness. Joel 2 12 to 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, I don't want to see all your showy religion stuff. Stop putting ashes on your head and fasting and tearing your clothes and telling me how amazing and faithful you are. I want your mind. I want your heart. I want sincere worship. I want you to know me. The prophets were given the eyes to see that Israel had lost their high view of God, and they were given the words to pray and preach by God to restore Israel's view of him. And if you want to see the kinds of prayers and sermons that they preached, you could look at Daniel 9 or Nehemiah 1 or uh, Nehemiah 8, the teaching of Ezra. Um, Over and over and over again, the prophets of God's people call them back to know God again and restore their high view of God. And what was the outcome of returning to a high view of God? The the outcome of a low view of God, we saw, was disaster for Israel repeatedly. What was the outcome of returning? When, When Israel repented and returned to a proper view of God, and God was glorified again, then idols were cast down, pagan powers lost their influence over Israel as a nation, their nation was healed, their city was restored and rebuilt, they returned to their land, the temple was rebuilt, justice and worship was renewed. And that is a pattern that's repeated again and again, five or six times in larger or smaller scales, all the way through the Old Testament. If the people of God, and that is the church today, let slip their high view of God and the centrality of his instruction and the centrality of worshiping God in their lives, they will be overcome by idolatry, paganism, sin, and eventually selfishness, greed, injustice, violence, and a loss of freedom. They'll fall into slavery. That's the the problem. We lose a high view of God, everything begins to deteriorate and dissipate and fall apart. Now, we see the same pattern, not just with followers of God as a nation or as a people. We see the same pattern in individual believers. You might think, okay, that's fine. That's, you know, maybe a problem for Israel or it's a problem for the church. It's a problem for you, Paul, you know, because you're leading the church, so you've got to deal with this. I don't understand how this impacts me. How is this a problem? Well, we see the same pattern in individual believers. We see the same problem in many examples, but perhaps most personally and with the best instruction to us in the Psalms. As your personal heart and your personal mind does not think accurately about God, you so too will your life dissipate. There's a good reason that From the time they were written roughly 2,700 years ago until now, the Psalms have been a place of refuge for followers of God. It's in the Psalms that we encounter the most personal and most exalting poetry of individual people who are returning to and extolling a high view of God. You want to get a high view of God refreshed in your heart and mind? Just pick any Psalm, literally. There's 150 of them. Just grab one, start reading, you know, and keep reading. The Psalms are there to show how a personal follower of God needs, depends on, lives by a high view of God. 
Most of the Psalms take as their initial assumption that God is not being properly praised. He is not being thought of properly. He is not being worshipped and esteemed as he should be. And thus, both the nation and individuals are lost in despair. For instance, Psalm 14 begins with a general indictment against a low view of God. So low, it's actually a lost view of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. This is the assumption that the psalmists all start with. That God is not being understood, he's not being worshipped, he's not being glorified as he should be. On an individual level then, we have the Psalms of David confessing his sin and not honoring God as he should and the consequence of his low view. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so David starts his Psalms personally saying, I have not held you in the right esteem, God. I I have belittled your commandments. I've, I've neglected you and I've put my own sin and my own desire ahead and it is always before me. I am broken by what has happened in my life. Or it's even just a lack of faith and weakness and trust in the nature of God that the psalmist knows must be restored. And so he preaches to himself in song. In Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mizar. So here's the psalmist, again, under the assumption and confessing the reality that his view of God is not right. And he's like, I am in despair. I am cast down. I am depressed. And so I have to remember God. I need to get my knowledge of God in the right place. I have to remember, he's talking about all the great things there historically that God has done and put his hope in God again. And so we see in the psalms, whether it's the psalm writer here, whether it's David, whether it's talking about the nation, whether it's talking about the world, the people, whether it's talking about individuals, the assumption of the psalms is that a low view of God has prevailed and a high view of God needs to be restored. And although many of the words of the prophets dwell on the lost view and the low view of God, I mean, it's a slog getting through Jeremiah. (laughs) It's a slog getting through some of the, you know, even the minor prophets. Because the the prophets really dwell on the low view of God that Israel is holding. The joy, though, in the Psalms is that it doesn't stay there very long. The joy of the Psalms, even though the initial assumption is that the low view of God is the problem, the psalmist uniformly and rapidly recognize that the solution is a restoration of a high view of God. The solution is to preach to themselves and rehearse for their listeners the highest possible views of God. And this is why, as Christians, we keep coming back to the Psalms, because we know instinctively that's the inoculation we need. That's the medicine that our hearts and minds require. We need our view of God restored, and we need the resulting hope and joy and worship renewed, and this is why we love the Psalms. Psalm 52 says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his own riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. There's the assumption, low view of God. 
But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. You see, immediately he's like, I know where I need to go. I need to get back to a high view of God. I I see the problem for the people who don't have a high view of God, but that's not going to be me. The result then of returning to a high view of God for the individual follower Confidence, security, joy, renewal, perseverance, purpose, wisdom, worship. You will see all of those things repeated over and over and again in the Psalms. Psalm 145. I'll just read this one to you. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. See, that's a high view of God. (laughs) That's a high view of God that the psalmist knows he needs to return to, that that we need to return to, that, that we need in our own lives. Psalm 92, again, you just go anywhere. It's good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. You see, we could go on all day in the Psalms, literally, but the pattern remains. A low view of God is the beginning of despair. A low view of God is poverty. The psalmists know it. The prophets knew it. The psalmists instruct us how to return to a high view of God, and they are rewarded with joy and praise. So for you personally this morning, if you are struggling in your life with joy, with security, with hope, worshiping God, If you're struggling with confusion, with doubt, with fear of what's going on around you, the psalmist says, my foot almost slipped when I saw the wicked. If you're struggling in any of those ways, then the simple answer is think about God. Maybe the problem is, almost certainly the problem is, your view of God is too low if you're struggling in that way, in any of those ways. Because as you restore your thoughts of God to the high place that God is and holds and should take in your life, then all those other things fade away. But it's not just the prophets. It's not just the psalmist. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. As we turn to the New Covenant, we can look at the apostles. We can read the Gospels and the letters and discover that the same reality has held true from Genesis to Revelation. The Apostle Paul, Peter, John, James, all the writers of the New Testament were essentially battling within their churches and among their people low views of God that allowed strife and sin and turmoil to enter into the people of God. You could be talking about Hostility between Jews and Greeks, between different tribes in the culture. 
because they could not fathom how God, through Jesus, had broken down the wall of enmity between nations in Ephesians 2, 14 to 22. And so their view of God was incomplete, it was low, it was insufficient, and so Jews and Greeks were battling each other because their God was not big enough. And Paul had to teach them in Ephesians that God has overcome all of that. Or you could look at arrogance and mistreatment because followers had their sights set on worldly issues instead of on God, which is James, well, it's pretty much all of James. It's James chapter 2 for sure, but it's pretty much all of James. And so James is, is trying to teach his people that the reason you have enmity, the reason that you have strife, the reason that you are biting and attacking each other is because you do not have a high view and a proper view of God. Restore your understanding of God. And these things will pass. Sin and corruption enter into the lives of the people of the New Testament and the early church because the holiness of God was forgotten. And even the new covenant church was returning to idolatry in 1 Corinthians 5 and 10. Paul is teaching this. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things took place as examples for us. Basically, Paul was just explaining how all the stuff in the Old Testament, kind of the same stuff I was talking about, he's explaining to the church in the New Testament, all that stuff, all the, all the prophets and all the judges and the, all the stuff that happened back then, they took place as examples for us so that we might not desire as evil as they did. This whole sermon today, this whole book is basically 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 7. It's basically, look back, understand what was being said in the Old Testament, and Understand that that was for teaching us. What specifically does Paul say that this whole Old Testament story is for us for? Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, we could have a whole other sermon just on idolatry, but you can pick up there that he said, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, they kneeled down before idols and worshipped them. That's not what he means by idolatry. He says, they became idolaters when they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, your self-centered pursuing of desires for your own satisfaction is idolatry. And that will lower your view of God. When you put your life and making your life good and having your castle and having your toys and having your vacations, and I'm not saying those are bad things. God wants good things for us. But when that becomes your life, that becomes your idol. And it lessens your view of God. And Paul says, learn, learn from 3,000 years of Israel's history and don't repeat it the way they did. The consequence of that low view of God is a distortion of the gospel. We see in Galatians 1 and 2, it's a dishonor. It brings dishonor on the church and on Christian community. We see in 1 Corinthians 6. And the apostles' antidote to reverse this downward trend of the church and of God's people. What did the apostles teach? You won't be surprised at the answer. The antidote for the apostles is the same as for the prophets and for the psalmists. It is restore a high view of God. And for the purposes of time, I'll just pause on one summary of Paul's often repeated answer to the problems in the church and to the problems in the people of God. In every letter, in various ways, one way or the other, and whether it's Peter or John or James, they all do the same thing. Paul and they say something like this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened 
with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What's Paul's antidote to all the problems the churches are facing? What's Paul's antidote to the struggles of his Christian friends that he is trying to help in these letters? Churches that are tearing themselves apart in some cases, friends and neighbors, family members that hate each other. He says, this is my prayer. Get a high view of God again. Know God. Know the love of God. Know the unknowable. Right? I pray that you might comprehend that which surpasses knowledge. (laughs) The only way you're going to do that, through the Holy Spirit, a whole bunch of stuff we could unpack there. But the bottom line is, people, the reason that the prophets preached what they preached, the reason the psalmist sang what they sang, the reason the apostles teach what they teach, the reason Tozer writes this book, is because there's really one answer to our problem of sin and idolatry and selfishness and dissipation and depression and despair and hopelessness and purposelessness, the answer is always restore your high view of God. What does that mean for what you're facing today? Does it apply to life? The law and the prophets would say so. The psalmist and the wisdom writers would say so. The Gospels and the New Covenant apostles would say so. They would say this very notion is most relevant to your life today. Because the pattern that we are discovering in Scripture, whether it's from the books of Moses to the letters of the apostles to the early church, is that the condition of the people of God is contingent on their view of God. If you are struggling in your faith, struggling with despair, not able to reconcile the state of your personal circumstances, unable to overcome your sin, lacking in wisdom, lacking victory, lacking peace, in whatever your circumstances, the breadth of Scripture, the Bible, from cover to cover would counsel you, examine your view of God. Is your view of God where it should be, or have you shrunk God down and paid him little attention? Have you lost sight of his greatness and laid hold of lesser gods who are ultimately failing you? This series, A.W. Tozer's book, The Law, The Prophets, The Psalmists, The Gospels, The Apostles, are all calling to us to return to a high view of God. And so over the weeks ahead, we're going to be unpacking week by week just a few of the attributes of God so that we can participate in receiving the answer to Paul's prayer, so that we can comprehend the breadth and the length and the height of God and his love, so that we can seek the riches of his grace and find him again as our creator and our sustainer and our redeemer and our king. And in so doing, as we do that in the weeks ahead, discover where our satisfaction really lies and where our joy and where our treasure is, belonging to and worshiping the God Most High. There is no greater purpose of God's people, and there is no greater purpose of God's church than to multiply the worship of God as he truly is. Amen. Amen. And that's what we're going to do over the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are the God most high, and we repent of the reality that the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, the foolishness of our own thoughts often belittle you. 
We make light of you. We make less of you. And in making less of you, we despair. We lose hope. And we start to hang on to other little gods all around us. And if we're not careful, we look back over months or years and realize that we've lost a true understanding of who you are. And so, Father, this morning and this series ahead of us is to restore a right understanding of you and put you in the proper place in our lives and let just the knowledge of you and the attributes of you and the reality of you and the presence of you and the grace and mercy and love of you cause all other things to pale in comparison and that we would treasure you most highly in our life and see the results of that treasuring work out the dysfunction and the disordering that's taken place. We pray these things for ourselves, and we pray that your name would be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen.